So you are my collaborator on the programmation with uh, right. Thibaut and Audrey, and we are working all together uh, on place to be. And now we are going to welcome. We are going to welcome Barbara Barbara Guchowski. Come on up. Welcome, Barbara. Welcome, Barbara. And let's give Barbara a microphone. <laughs> Barbara is a French-born um, anthropologist? Polish-born, actually, but living Polish in France. Polish-born, okay, okay, and speaking French as well. <laughs> um, your, your work uh, uh, really investigates the, the roots of what we're talking about tonight, is, you know, what, what do we learn from the past? Um, what are our roots, and um, what can it teach us today? I mean, we feel that it, things are so urgent and everybody's in a hurry, and we need to do something. But let's uh, let's take a moment to um, maybe think about you know where we came from. You know, you do a lot of work around um, well, indigenous. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I work with uh, indigenous people from Australia, in Australia, uh, since 35 years. And of course, contrary to just was said by Bridget in that little funny film, is that they are still there. And uh, they are at least uh, 50,000 years old, the civilization. And they have still a lot of lessons for us. And uh, all their cosmology, like uh, you can see on that book, is in becomings since ever. There has been a fantastic uh, scientific research which was made by uh, some uh, geologists to show that uh, collecting stories that have been recorded over 50 years by anthropologists and other observers among Aboriginal people who still tell those stories today, that 7,000 years ago, geologists demonstrated that there was a flood all around Australia, which has suppressed a lot of land, and all these stories are told by at least 100 different groups of different languages. And these scientists are saying, you see, you transmit the, the knowledge is here transmitted orally from generation to generation from se since 7,000 years. Well, I'm saying, it's not just transmitted, it's reinterpreted every generation in a very scientific way for us. That is, these were hunter-gatherers, fishermen, and they look at the ground and the prints of uh, the land, which are not just prints of people and animals, but of vegeta uh, vegetables and, uh, I mean, uh, wild vegetables, and uh, the sea, and the wind, and the sun, all this, and the stones, and the minerals, everything leaves traces that they read, and they can then have an interpretation to say and that there was water one day, uh, and or land between the coast and some islands that exist today. And so this is an interpretation that they continue to have today when they read what is happening in the desert, when they see the differences in the tides. And uh, the other day, Clive Hamilton told, told me after I presented something at the Collège de France, but how, how indigenous people, this was in public debate, how indigenous people with their ancient knowledge can have an answer for problems that we encounter today with technology? And I say they do, because they live today. They don't live 50,000 years ago, and they have to face exactly the same problems as we do, and even more, like fracking. And you have today, across Australia, Aboriginal people who are standing against fracking, because they know that it's destroying the land and the water that we all need. 
another thing I would like to say yeah, is that do. there is many indigenous people in Paris today, and I'm sure that some of you have met some already last week. There was two days at UNESCO in a conference. Uh, this Sunday there was a meeting organized by the Chief Raoni from Brazil to call for a specific um, statement, an alliance, which will be presented to the negotiators at the COP21. It's supported by Nicolas Hulot, who said that at the UNESCO the other day. But all these people are from different countries, all these indigenous people are trying to find solutions because they face those problems already, like islands which are threatened by floods, and they know that extractive industries are what is creating the climate problem. So if we want to change it, most of them say, not all of them, we are like all people, some force are against capital and money, but many, many indigenous people say that we have to change the system. Thank you for that. Um, there's a, the, the, you're hitting on a lot of the themes, and uh, part of the things uh, that we want to do during these evenings at A Place to Be is um, look at how we could reinvent, rewrite the, the, the story. And you're telling us about the ancient stories. And in your work, um, you, you talk about transnational. That, that notion of transnational, I'd like to um, have you say a few words about as it relates to um, sovereign nations and, and sovereignty in general. Well, we have two understandings of sovereignty. One is the state, which as you know only came the, quite recently in the long history of humanity. And then there is the sovereignty of the links that people have with the earth in their place, where they belong, as they say, in many cases, the indigenous people across the world, in Australia, in Brazil, and everywhere, including in Europe, like the Sami, that the land is also the trace of the language and all the things that were anchored there. So this is the sovereignty. So today when indigenous people who very often have been through colonization became minor in a state, they claim their sovereignty on the basis of this long historical uh, relation of care that they had to survive until today, of care with the land and its resources. Excellent. Um, I, I just want to follow up. Uh, we have a, a couple minutes left. Um, you you talk about um, how do I want to put this? You, you know um, what? If if we were g going to look at all all these issues, is there a fundamental, basic, organizing principle for humanity? It's sharing. Ah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sharing. But uh, just another thing about yeah, transnational. Today, all these indigenous groups, which represent roughly 6% of the population of the world, and more, if we do decide to live like indigenous people, which is not going back to hunting and gathering, but towards a transition to invent together, like some indigenous people do, because we like the technologies too. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here tonight. So, there is a declaration for the rights of indigenous peoples, that was peuple autochtone en français, pas peuple indigène, parce que c'est un terme un peu colonial. There is a declaration that was signed in 2007 and then refused by the states, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, who only signed in 2008 because governments changed. So let's hope that these governments that are meeting now will also change in relation to what they were doing before. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
Thank you, Donna. We are going to welcome right now uh, John Yoon. Please come on stage. You are a filmmaker and ecologist. Uh, you are a researcher in several institutions. Welcome, John. <laughs> I need another two now to welcome also Mr. Rob Hopkins. <laughs> Thank you for coming here. Rob, uh, you are a permaculture teacher, the founder of the transition movement. We are really happy to have you on stage with us too. Uh, uh, we have a, a seat for you uh, somewhere. <laughs> Take mine, it's okay. <laughs> no, it's no problem, I need to, you know, what <laughs> So, John, uh, you know Joe pretty well. Uh, it's only about your, your, your works, and um, I'm very happy to meet you tonight because, thank you. <laughs> Um, your work involves large-scale environmental restoration uh, of biomass and education around this. Uh, but before we go forward, what has your studies reminded us um, that we should be mindful of now? Well, I think um, what I'm seeing is that uh, you have functional and you have dysfunctional ecosystems on the planet. So. I'm looking at the biotic systems, at water systems, at soil fertility, at biodiversity. And the response that we're having is technological, or it's political, or it's economic, and it's virtual. We don't have virtual problems. We have physical problems. Every ecosystem on the planet is threatened with collapse. So we need to understand how these systems function. And that is the next level of human consciousness. So we've been working for thousands of years to look at how we organize society or how we build uh, infrastructural developments and so on. And we didn't understand how these natural systems work. We have a lot of data. We know how many of these things work. We know what are the mechanisms for um, natural regulation of the climate. And that's why we're here. Uh, you know, and, and I, I would also like to say it's great to be in Paris and it's great to show some solidarity with the people in Paris who can show courage and, and respond in a way with humanity. So thank you so much for having us. You're welcome, John, thank you. Thank you for being here. Rob, before we, we go um, and talk about transition and transformation, um, from, a, from your studies in permaculture and the work that you do, what, what do you take from the past? Uh, I think w one of the things that we did quite early on with doing transition in, in my town in Tottenham was we did a whole load of oral history interviews with people because when you start doing transition, it feels like it's a process, it's about the future, it's all about looking forward. But actually, you know, I was born in 1968. I have no living memory of life with less energy, with a more localized food system. And actually to go and hear the voices of the people who do have that memory is really useful and really instructive. So I interviewed many different people and heard stories around food and energy and water and the local economy and how everything worked. And one of the things that we asked people was, what would you really happily leave in the past 
And what are you really glad we take with you? Great you take question. with us. So the things that people were really glad to leave in the past were coal. Uh, they were really glad to leave having to wash all the, the women having to wash all the clothes on a Monday morning by hand in the freezing cold. Uh, the washing machine was the single most extraordinary invention uh, of the last century, I think, in lots of ways. Um, one of the things that people were really sad to leave behind was, the, was living in a town where food was growing around in the town, where there were market gardens in the town, where people had that close relationship to food. Um, and so, what, and, and a project I'm very involved in, in at the moment, uh, outside of transition, is a project in, in, in my town in Totnes called Atmos Totnes, which is the first um, community-led development on a really big scale in the UK using something called a community right to build order, a government power, where the community gets a right to vote as to whether they want a development to go ahead. So if you think now all the awful housing going up around where you live, if the community, 50% of the community had to vote yes for it to go ahead, how different would it look? And part of the consultation that we did for that, most consultation around new buildings, just starts by saying, here's a blank slate, what could we build? With this, we started, we had a, the consultation was past, present, and future. So we made a space for the past, for people who used to work in this place, it was an old milk factory, employed hundreds of people, for people to come in and tell their stories. What happened was a kind of self-organizing, self-generated museum of the site. People came in and cried in there about how much that place meant, and all of those stories then started to, people brought in photos of their parents working there in the 1930s, so the past, for me, really is, is important. One of the things that's lovely with transition is local currencies. In the city of Bristol, the question about if you were making a local currency for your town, which part to your city or town's history would you celebrate on the notes? And this is from the city of Bristol, where in the 1960s, uh, black people were, were barred from working on the city's buses. So there was a whole movement to celebrate, to, 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 to boycott the buses for a couple of years. Uh, Non-white people refused to travel on the city buses, uh, and uh, and actually after two years it, it changed. And actually that's a part of Bristol's history that isn't told very often. And here on their new £10 note, they celebrate the, the, the no-colour bar story. So for me, transition is often about stories, and bringing the past into those stories is really important. Thank you for that. And, and when, you're, when you uh, brought out the note, um, what are the systems of values? What are, what are we valuing? What, what are you seeing, Barbara, from, from the Aboriginal cultures? How do they assign value? Well, value is um, storytelling, songs, dancing, which tell the relation of the people with all the things that exist in the land, and they were exchanged according to a system of law, which is like, uh, intellectual uh, copy right left because uh, you are recognized for what you are an owner of what you receive through your family or you dreamt but then you give it to others to circulate it can circulate for a generation or come back after two three four generation being transformed as it as it travels from one group to another and that model is carried by in the whole cosmology by the ancestral uh, people who were, who were wind dreamings, uh, sun dreamings, and uh, kangaroo dreamings, or seed dreamings, who traveled across the land. Okay. So this is what the value is. 
Excellent, thank you. I'm going to ask John the same question. Well, I think what we're seeing is that we have created a system which is inherently corrupt. And it's also inverted in that the derivatives, things which are extracted, manufactured, bought, and sold, are given um, a value. But natural ecosystem function, the rain, the river systems, the oceans, the atmosphere, climate, is zero. In this, in this economic system. It can't be true, it's false. And it's, it's just simply wrong. So we have inverted this, we've inflated the derivatives, and we've devalued the source of life. And in order to have another outcome, we're going to have to move to this recognition that things are, are really happening. We have, we have an atmosphere. If we go back to uh, evolutionary time, we didn't have an atmosphere on the earth. There was no atmosphere. Um, fresh water, fertility, biodiversity, these are evolutionary trends. We need to understand that collectively as a species, and we need to act on a planetary scale. So we have to really process this information. It's like a flat earth, round earth situation. So you have now laws and institutions which are there to maintain a lie, maintain something which is false. And unless we approach this in a childlike and naive way and look at this and say, well, you know, it's, it's not flat. There's plenty of evidence that it's round and that, and that it circles the sun and that it spins and wobbles it's round and we can now look and see that climate regulation fresh water soil with zero pollution food with zero pollution biodiversity this is where the real value is and everything that's ever been made and everything that will ever be made is is worthless it ends up on the trash heap and it's ridiculous to to say that that's more valuable or that's the basis of money and if you were to understand this, and you were to base human economy on ecological function, then all human effort would go to conserving, protecting, and restoring ecological function on the planet. And that's what we need to do in order to have uh, a regulated climate. change very much with your few community gardens. One of the most patronizing things anybody ever said to me. And uh, one of the things that we did for, for, for COP21 was we made this little book called 21 Stories of Transition. And we invited transition groups around the world to send us in the stories of what they were doing. And we had many, many stories. 
There are now 50 countries where there are transition groups happening, thousands of groups. And from those stories, we chose 21, and they come from 39 different places in 15 different countries. And what I like doing is, 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 is giving talks about these stories and telling some of the stories, but then inviting people to then talk to the person next to them and chew over what are the threads you see running through these stories. And they're different in every different place. And uh, people pick out all, all kinds of different things. I think for us, we chose the word transition because we need, with my roots in permaculture, it felt like actually getting from where we are now to where we need to be is a design project. And it needs to be a design project uh, that isn't just in the hands of one or two designers, but it's in the hands of as many people as possible. And that we design a process that removes as many obstacles to people getting involved as possible. And, uh, and so that, that's one of the things that really runs, runs through it for me. And it runs through all the stories, whether it's community energy companies, local food projects, local currencies, communities becoming their own developers. I think sometimes when we, one of the risks for me with, with, with COP is that we give away our sense that change is possible to the decisions that are made at Le Bourget. Exactly. Um, uh, what, one of the things we were looking at last night um, and talking about, actually, is the um, complexity and the interrelatedness of all the, all the systems and, and all the, the problematics. When you look at, you know, this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, um, and people are, are paralyzed, and, and they, they seem to wait for these easy answers coming from the institutions that we've constructed that are no longer responding to us. You know, how do you go about empowering people? How do you give them the sense that, yes, they, they, they could make a little step that makes a huge difference? I think one way uh, is that we recognize that as climate activists, that just to tell people how terrible climate change is, 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 is really irresponsible on its own. And one of the things that's a real part of transition is a thing called inner transition, which is uh, supporting people, you know, putting in place those strategies around resilience, personal resilience. And Naomi Klein, uh, a while ago, she, she said that one of the things that she loved about transition and the inner transition thing, she said, if you collapse people's worldview, you have to stick around afterwards to help them pick up the pieces. And uh, just to tell people what's going on and not putting that in the context of something that you can do. And transition is now a kind of a 10-year experiment. And then transition has learned, stands on the shoulders of permaculture and all the different things that go before. It's really about trying to uh, invite people to step into doing something and to value the small things as much as the big things. So you know, we have one of the stories in here is about a street uh, in Brussels uh, in the red light district where the local council to try and stop prostitution from, from people driving up and down the street, put these concrete blocks in place. The transition group said, we can do a bit better than that. And they built a garden in the middle of the street, which actually not only meant that uh, the, 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 the prostitution wasn't such a challenge, but it meant children played in the street again for the first time. It was a street where you just put your collar up and walked straight. Now people hang out in the street, they smile, they talk to each other. It's a small project. It's not going to feed the street it's not going to feed one family, but we need those first stages. Sometimes we assume that people can go from nothing to sort of hugely empowered and doing amazing things. We need the stepping stones. We need the invitations in at different layers because people have different levels of confidence. And we need at every stage to be inviting people to take a part. And one of the ways to do that is to tell stories about people like them, people like us. If there are some uh, specific issues that are working more than others 
to motivate people to transform consciousness into action to transform that to do this transition. Are there different issues? Yes. Uh, what is the best way to enter? You know, uh, is it uh, the food? Is it the water it, What do you observe? Is it, it depends completely on the different people. It depends who comes. Of so if you have this, so the one of the things for me that's really powerful about transition is is that it's very broad. And it's an invitation to make the place where you live more diverse, more resilient. So if people are, if, if you end up with a group full of people who are just interested in local food, you won't get a community energy company. So, 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 you, so by it being driven by what people are passionate about, that's really what drives the process. So early on when we did transition, we would say, we do transition in response to these challenges. Transition was a response to uh, the energy crisis, to climate change, to the economy. We don't do that anymore. We now say transition is a movement of people who are reimagining and rebuilding the world. And you don't need to always start with a problem up front because actually what they're doing is sufficiently fantastic all over the world that that's sufficient justification in itself. All over the world that that's sufficient justification in itself. We're so good at needing the same <laughs> That was great. Um, it, it, wait, no one knows how that happened, so everybody take note. I've been doing evening classes on that for weeks. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things we were saying at that place to be is um, we're, we're not we're not against anything, but we're for. Um, we're for empowerment. We're for for um, finding solutions. But John, I want to ask you a question. You've done large scale uh, restoration projects on huge tracts of land. Um, I've been documenting them. Oh. <laughs> um, what what motivated the, the individuals in the, in that process to, to get out there and work? Well, I think um, you have two ways to look at it. One is top down, and the other is from the bottom up. So, um, when you have extreme poverty and miserable conditions, then it's really necessary to do something else, otherwise you just continue something which is impossible. And from the top down, you have a, a lot of levers. And I, I, one of the major ones for the, the work in China that I started to document 20 years ago was sediment controls. So if you just measured the cost of the sediment controls, where you each year the sediments would go into the river, it would cause flooding and then drought and then famine, then you were justified to spend any amount of money to restore this area because the cost was so high. But I, I, would, I would say that we, you know, you, you sort of said something earlier that I would like to address that whether it's transition or transformation, I think we are now at a crucial moment in human history. And the, the window of opportunity may be rather small. If you're looking at the scientific evidence, it seems that the, quite, quite quickly we could get to a place where some irrevocable changes might take place. So what, what I've seen is that ecosystem functions are fine, the earth is fine. There's nothing wrong with the earth. It's humans who have the problem. Human beings are disrupting natural evolutionary trends, and there are three major trends. 
biodiversity, biomass, and accumulated organic matter. These are the determinants for the future of humanity. And if we, if we stop getting, you know, you, you were talking about complexity. I think complexity is great. Complicated is not so good. You have very complex natural systems, and, and it's wonderful. It's, they're infinitely fascinating. But they're also renewable, and, and they're, they're constantly filtering and constantly renewed. That's wonderful. We're making complicated systems, and we need to be much more aware of we can understand, we can go to the next level of human consciousness. And I believe that the lever is economic. I believe that the lever is money. Because we're, money is working to have everybody, everybody working together. But we have a transactional economy. We need to have a trust economy. And we, we need to realize when we understand that ecological function is more valuable than things, then our money should reflect that. Our economy should reflect that. And if it did, then we would go to work. Now we're going to work and actually we could create pollution or we could hurt other people or we could do useless things, wasteful things. But if ecological function is the basis of money, then all human work would be positive. So I think that's a lever and that may be what we have to do in the short term. I think in the long term you also see that we have to do less. We have to have growth but this growth is not growth of more stuff, more roads, more cars, more machines. This is growth in biodiversity, in biomass, and accumulated organic matter. Because that's going to ensure that the soil is fertile, that we have beautiful biodiversity, and that we have natural regulation of, of the weather and the climate. And that's what we need. So then we have to say, what is wealth? And we can see that wealth is not having more stuff. Wealth is having more time. So we could work less. We could spend more time with our families. We could spend more time with our friends. We could have lemonade under the fig tree. And I think that's what we should be doing, having lemonade under the fig tree. I don't think anybody can argue with that. Time is the last topic of the place to be programmation of the elements of December. We will dedicate the whole evening to this question of time, so I'm very happy that you are you know, insisting on that because I do believe that it is one of the most important things today. Um, now it's time for questions. So if you have any questions to ask to a speaker, and I think Barbara, sure. maybe you could come back to on the stage if you want. I don't know where the stage you to go. <laughs> this is a perfect initial wedding. Um, because I think it's not interesting to everyone. Um, just raise your hand. Uh, we have a micro. We also have some people online. If you're on line, if you're following Flora, normally, Pierre, with his little ordinateur, you can ask the questions that are in line. Euh, voilà, donc il euh, y a quelqu'un qui lève la main au fond. Someone in the back with a micro. I, I can't see. Ok. 
You're far away. <laughs> Hello. Is there a water? Just give your name and who you are. Hello, bonsoir. Thank you. Um, my name is Eloi Sanvis, and I'm a writer and artist living in Paris. Um, I guess my question is, um, so we are understanding that we are, we are past this information period about climate change, and we're now trying to find a stimuli to act together and new narratives. And you talk about the economic lever, uh, and you talk also about very much more pragmatic things to do, like if you're interested in food, you get into food and urban gardening. Uh, I guess my interest is, uh, is also, do we need uh, maybe a more symbolic order to understand uh, this, this new era we're entering, and do we need uh, in that story, I know good stories always start with like some sort of rite of passage, you know, and when you're a reader, the, the, the writer takes you into some kind of ritual, and you get into uh, another, another worldview, and those are very symbolic things, and I, and I wonder if we need to think about um, this symbolically also uh, for climate change, you know, I don't know if my question is clear, but... Is it clear? What do you want to do? I think it was clear. Who would like to handle that? Barbara, the mic's coming to you. Well, uh, I mean, ritual has always been part of uh, all humanity, but it's been transformed by uh, religion which were written in specific rituals. There is many other rituals which are still practiced by indigenous people and by many people today who invent rituals every day. Now it's true that we, if we have a common goal which is to change the way we live, it's becoming a form of ritual, whatever we do. That's great. So so ritual and, um, well, b before you go that, is there, do we have another question? Please. Somebody can pass the mic. Uh, it's coming. It's coming. Thank you. I'm Rob Wheeler. I'm with the Global Eco Village Network. I have a question for John about economic value of ecosystem restoration. We just completed a section for our website on um, ways of restoring the natural environment as a part of our contribution to COP21. And through that process, I discovered that a lot of things that are being done in eco villages, biochar restoration key line and uh, carbon farming, uh, water system restoration. There's a lot of different approaches that are very valuable for restoring the natural environment, very much needed. How can we put an economic value on these things so that communities have the funds needed in order to uh, adopt these approaches? I, I think you should um, probably grab that uh, draft document that they're writing and look at it because I think it has a number of mentions of something called ecosystem-based adaptation. And I think that in my, in my experience, I've been asked by the United Nations, the World Bank, the Global Environment Facility, the FAO, all these kinds of organizations, and looked at a number of different things. They have climate-smart agriculture, they have integrated watershed management, they have agroecology, they have uh, agroforestry, they have uh, any number of these rhetorical flourishes. But basically what I think we're looking at is nature-based or biotic uh, interventions, biological interventions. 
we have physical disruptions to the Earth's systems. So we're not going to talk it to death. We're not going to make it better with virtual reality or any of this stuff. We're going to have to restore soil fertility. We're going to have to restore biomass. If you look at the uh, climax ecosystems you know, where they still exist, and they do, um, they're enormous. The highest canopies are 115 meters high. And if you look around, if you, have you seen any 115 meter high veg, vegetation lately? You know, so we, we've miniaturized vegetation on the earth. Now that's all biomass, and that's all, that's all photosynthesis, and that's all water. So 70 to 95 percent leaf, leafy materials, 95 percent water, other materials, 70 percent water. All the biomass is maintaining the water system, and it's gone. And the soil fertility, same thing. This is the infiltration and retention of moisture. It's also the microbiologic communities, which release nutrients from, from uh, minerals and recycle um, nutrients from decaying organic matter. We have to come up with this. What is the value? And the value may not be an absolute value. It needs to be a relative value. Because if you put an absolute value on these things, you're probably devaluing them because they're actually priceless. But if you, if you say that stuff is worth more than these systems, you're completely wrong. So all we have to do is say ecosystem function is always vastly more valuable than, than things, than extraction, manufacturing, trade, and somehow we've gotten into speculation and debt which are basically just criminal corruption. So if you go to reality, then you'll have to say ecosystem function is vastly more valuable than extraction, manufacturing, and trade. And if we put that in ecosystem-based adaptation, everybody's doing ecosystem-based adaptation, then it's going to be really great. And that seems to be covered in the, in the agreement. So. It looks like people who do ecosystem-based adaptation can get paid by the by the carbon funds and the green funds and so on. Thank you. Do we have another question? Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Harry. Uh, I am from uh, French Guiana, and uh, I'm very happy to, to see a dental biologist uh, here. And I heard uh, this morning, Mr. Laurent Fabius said the, the more fragile uh, about uh, climate change are uh, poor people and women. And of course, he forgot uh, indigenous people. And when we talk about indigenous people, we always think about uh, people in, in Africa, in North America, in Asia, uh, I know there are some in Northern Europe, in Sweden or Finland, maybe. But we French people, sometimes, uh, we forget we have indigenous people in, in France. In French Guyana and in uh, Kanaki, you call it Nouvelle Calédonie, yeah? we have indigenous people 
we will suffer as much uh, as indigenous people all around the world. Donc, euh, je veux attirer euh, l'attention de, de mes compatriotes euh, français que quand vous versez une larme pour les peuples autochtones ou vous voulez faire une action pour les peuples autochtones, renseignez-vous tout simplement euh, sur les peuples autochtones qui souffrent en France et la France n'a toujours pas ratifié la Convention 169 de l'OIT. Juste notez euh, ce chiffre. 169, bon 69 ça parle à beaucoup de personnes avec un, un devant. Merci. Je pense que c'est très important de le rappeler. Euh, avant de venir ici, j'avais une longue conversation avec Alexis Tuka, que vous connaissez peut-être. Voilà, de Guyane française. Il est malheureusement très malade, donc il ne peut pas être en France pour ces dix jours, mais euh, il va envoyer un texte euh, qui, qui sera lu dans les jours qui viennent, et notamment euh, à une rencontre qu'on organise euh, au Collège de France le 14 décembre, pour ceux que ça intéresse, site Cardinal Lemoine. Euh, et je pense que c'est effectivement euh, essentiel. Euh, les, tous les peuples amérindiens de Guyane française, les 28 de, de langues différentes de Nouvelle-Calédonie et toutes les autres îles du Pacifique qui sont encore françaises, peut-être pas pour toujours, euh, sont en lien, euh, comme aussi les, les Polynésiens de Tahiti et des 100 autres îles de l'archipel, sont en lien depuis longtemps parce qu'ils ont à la fois un passé historique commun, euh, que ce soit dans le Pacifique euh, ou euh, dans l'Atlantique euh, ou dans l'océan Indien, avec d'autres peuples qui ont été colonisés en anglais, en espagnol ou dans d'autres, mais ils se retrouvent justement sur des plateformes transnationales, euh, que ce soit à l'ONU, euh, à Genève et à New York, où ce sont eux qui, depuis 1980, se sont réunis après, année après année, certains faisant du lobby sur place en permanence, comme Alexis Tuka, qui d'ailleurs avait fait une grève de la faim pendant un mois avec cinq autres euh, autochtones du monde, pour que, les, par exemple, les financements ne s'arrêtent pas quand la déclaration a été signée en 2007, parce que bon, l'ONU s'était dit, voilà, on a une déclaration, donc c'est réglé. Ben non, c'est jamais réglé, c'est juste un outil pour travailler à la souveraineté. Donc, il y a un forum des peuples autochtones qui continue à se réunir, et alors là, puisque vous êtes tous amateurs, tout de même, de l'Internet, n'hésitez pas à taper indigenous, autochtones, et tous les pays du monde où il y a ces populations-là, et vous aurez des milliers de sites, des milliers de postes, et de mobilisation et d'information extraordinaires, parce que tout à l'heure vous posiez la question de l'empowerment, et s'il y a vraiment des, des, des gens, des hommes, des femmes, des enfants, qui se sont appropriés le net dès son apparition, ce sont les peuples autochtones, évidemment, à condition d'avoir l'électricité. Thank you, Barbara. Um, just to finish this bit um, of conversation, do you have just one word, one message that you would like to transmit to our public here or online? John? Um, well, I would say that uh, we're here in Paris because there's such a focus on climate right now because of the COP. But maybe it's more important that we have a collective consciousness about these things because I don't think we can have that much confidence 
in the political process. So if, if this is the 21st convening of the parties and we still don't have an agreement, then it, it actually says something right there. So once you start to understand that uh, we, we need to act, then we may have to do this without, you know, the, 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 those who are saying that they're leaders may not be leading. And so we need to, we need to act immediately. So collective okay. consciousness. Okay. Rob, what's your word last message? Well, I went. I was at Le Bourget today, and uh, and it's it struck me as really really fascinating how the culture underneath it is is shifting. I went to an event that was run by the New Zealand Prime Minister with the Prime Minister of Sweden and Denmark and Norway and other places, all about uh, removing stopping subsidies for fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, it was really amazing, and uh, and uh, and the the. The recently, when the when the G20 were talking about the end of uh, fossil fuels or putting a date on the end of fossil fuels, the language, the culture around those things is is really shifting. And actually, I think as as citizens, of course, it matters that we campaign and we lobby. But at the same time, we don't wait for permission. We start to build that world because we're ahead of that curve. No, they what well, so okay. So we if we stop fossil fuels, if we're stable below two degrees, what on earth kind of world would that look like? It feels a bit scary. Well, actually, we can tell that story. We've been doing it for years through the global, through the Ecovillage Network, through permaculture, through transition. We can paint those pictures. We can bring that to life. And we can take people to see it and smell it and taste it. And new economies are happening. They're coming forward. Huge amounts of investment going into people's own, own economies for economies that actually meet the needs of the people where we live, joining people up after being so isolated from each other. So I sense that actually... COP21 is just a moment, it's a snapshot. But underneath there is an inevitable flow in that direction. In COP15, the climate movement was so burnt out and frazzled after that. So for me, what's decided at COP21 is what's decided at COP21. But there is an inevitable, coal is finished, oil and gas are on the way out, history is turning, and actually this is a really remarkable, as you said, John, an extraordinary time to be alive. And actually what we see happening in, in communities, all of you, can help create that picture, and it's exhilarating for me, I think. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I mentioned that you and your team are in place to be uh, for a few days. You've got some of your books, so if you're interested to have a look at your book, uh, you have some there if you wish to buy one. Um, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Joe, for this conversation and, and this uh, Nice moment of sharing. I will now welcome from the team of Please to be Johan Manes, Omanet, <laughs> and. Thank you,